Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Today's passage is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Uh, I've, t- I've entitled the message, Jesus Upholds and Fulfills All of the Old Testament. Before I read the text, last night uh, our family were taking a brief walk through our neighborhood, and uh, a fellow pastor lives in our neighborhood, Boyd Johnson, who's the pastor of Treasuring Christ Church, who's a friend of ours, we, we really respect him, and uh, he was walking on the other side of the road with his kids, and I said, what you preaching on tomorrow? He said, James 3, first couple verses. We talked about that. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, uh, Matthew 5, I came not to abolish but to fulfill the law. And then Boyd said back, now I, I really respect Boyd's opinion. Boyd said back to me, I don't, I don't think he was exaggerating or trying to be funny. He said, that's the hardest passage I've ever preached in my life. And I said, ah. Oh. <laughs> so Boyd, Boyd put the little fear into me uh, last night as I was walking. So uh, I don't know if I would say it's the hardest passage I've ever preached, but this is certainly a challenging text, and it is probably the hardest one so far in Matthew's gospel, and it's a very important passage because it connects to how we put our whole Bible together, how we fit the Old and New Testaments together, Uh, and it's challenging. It's a little bit more challenging than it may look at first glance, but uh, we are going to go ahead and read today's text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm just going to warn you at the front end, you know, every sermon's a little different. This sermon is a little more dense, perhaps, than some sermons, so it will take probably some effort to, to continue along with me, but I do, do really think that there's a lot here for us to learn from and to benefit from as we go forward. Very important text uh, from the teaching of Jesus. Let me say a few things about where this particular text fits into the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest undivided set of words from Jesus that we have in the Bible that I'm aware of, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. almost, there's no interruption until you get to the end of the sermon, and this sermon is a wonderfully put together message. Here's how this works, and I'm borrowing these thoughts from others, of of course, this is not something original to myself. The first first, uh, 16 verses of the sermon, which is the Beatitudes and Salt and Light, that is really the introduction to the main body of the sermon. So we have already covered the introduction to the sermon in the last several uh, weeks, And now we're entering into what many have called the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what the main body of the sermon is all about. And one of the crucial statements is verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine how shocked his listeners were when he said those words? First of all, the Pharisees are not going to heaven according to this text, right? Because you've got to have greater righteousness than them to get into heaven, so they're not in. So everyone in the room is going, well, if the Pharisees aren't in, who is going to make it? There's no one more meticulous in law-keeping than them. And then Jesus is going to spend the rest of the sermon really contrasting true righteousness from Pharisaical righteousness. It runs through the whole rest of the body of the sermon. So it really splits down into a few different sections. Verses, if you look here at the text, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, do you see in chapter 5? You probably have headings in your Bible. Do you see how they have different sins listed for the headings? You've got anger in verse 21 and following, lust in verse 27, uh, divorce in verse 31, oath-taking in verse 33, retaliation in verse 38, loving your enemies in verse 43. And Jesus is going to be saying, listen, I'm going to unpack what the Old Testament is truly saying and how the Old Testament has been distorted by the Pharisees with some false ideas. And I'm going to give you the true interpretation of what God's Word is saying, what that true righteousness is that is necessary. Then when you get into chapter 6, if you look at chapter 6, and this is debatable, but basically 1 through 21 about, uh, you would say, this is where Jesus is saying, uh, how about your personal piety? So I know it's hard to do an outline. I don't have it written out in front of you. Just, just listen for a second. For, for the rest of chapter 5, uh, what you're dealing with is Jesus demands a greater righteousness in relationship to the Torah, the Old Testament law, than the Pharisees have. That's the rest of 5. And you'll see it as we walk through these week by week. Then chapter 6, the first about 21 verses or so, he's saying you need greater righteousness in regards to personal piety. Your giving, your fasting, your prayer, these kinds of things he'll go through. And the, and the Lord's prayer is obviously there. And then there's probably overlap here, but if you start in 619, if you look at your text there, 619 with laying up treasures in heaven, and you go all the way through 712... You have here greater righteousness in relation to daily life in the world. And you'll see heaven and earth contrasts, storing up treasures on earth or in heaven, rewards in heaven or on earth. You've got anxiety, money, judging others, prayer and asking God for, for His help. And the sign that we've reached the end of the main body of the sermon comes in 712. So look at 712. So whatever you wish, it's the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that phrase, law and the prophets, or law or the prophets, it only appears twice in Matthew's gospel. No, no, only twice in the Sermon on the Mount, the law and the prophets. And it's perfect because it's, it, it acts as bookends to the main body of the sermon, which is perfect. 5.17, I came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them is the beginning of the main body of the sermon after the introduction. And then 7.12 concludes the body of the sermon with, again, a mention of the golden rule and the law and the prophets. And if you look at 7.13 to the end of the sermon, all you have now are concluding warnings. Good tree bears good fruit. Some will say to me, I did this and that. I never knew you. Build your house on the rock, not on the sand. So Jesus is done with the main body of the sermon when he gets to the golden rule. And then he does three concluding warning statements to end the sermon. That's very hard to do out loud without a, without a PowerPoint, but I hope you have some sense there of where this is going. So personal righteousness is going to be of utmost importance in this sermon. Let's look back at our primary text here. I am of the persuasion that Jesus is referring to 
at least either verbal or, or people just thinking, but no doubt he received verbal uh, accusations of being, I'll use a 20-cent word here, antinomian. Anti just means against, and the Greek word for law is namos. So antinomian means to be lawless in your behavior. To be antinomian means to not care about God's law or seek to fulfill God's law. And Jesus at times was accused of antinomianism, of being lawless. So you say, Jesus, the righteous one, the one who came to fulfill all righteousness, was accused of being lawless? Yes, by the scribes and the Pharisees, because as we At the beginning of the service, I read Matthew 15, they accused Jesus and His disciples of not washing their hands properly for the ritual before the meal, and they accused Jesus of breaking the law. And Jesus says, those aren't in the Bible. Those are elder traditions added to the Bible. I'm not breaking a biblical command. I'm breaking one of your elders' added commands to the Bible, a legalism added to the Bible. I'm not actually breaking scriptural commands here. So, uh, what, what you will see is Jesus is responding to a charge of Him being against God's law. Let's look at it again. I'm going to reread these texts a few different times, but look at 5.17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if you will, I'm going to give a paraphrase, okay? I'm warning you about the denseness of this sermon, so hang with me today. I'm going to give you a paraphrase here of of what I think Jesus is saying, paraphrase, and then we will begin to unpack this as we go. So just listen. This is my paraphrase of what Jesus just said in 17 to 20. Jesus is saying, so far from breaking or abolishing the law, I am the one to whom the law and the prophets are pointing. You think I'm against the law? The law is all about me. I came to fulfill it. I'm not against it. I am the whole point of the law. It's me. I'm the point. How am I against the law? It's about me. That's what he's saying. So far from breaking or abolishing the law, I am the one to whom the law and the prophets are pointing, and I am the one who will bring it all to fulfillment. I will not leave a single pin stroke unfulfilled. I will not leave a single pin stroke unfulfilled. In fact, it is the scribes and Pharisees who are actually antinomian in their hearts. My followers truly follow the law in light of the law's fulfillment in me. Wow, that's a lot, isn't it? Let me read that last part again. In fact, it is the scribes and Pharisees who actually are antinomian, lawless in their hearts. Their motives are all bad, like whitewashed sepulchers. My followers truly follow the law in light of its fulfillment in me. So, the message here is going to have four points, and I'll begin with point one. Jesus upholds all of the Old Testament. This is verses 17 and 18. Point number one, Jesus upholds all of the Old Testament. Look at verse 17 yet again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Law and the prophets is a pretty normal way of speaking of the entirety of the Hebrew canon of Scripture, what we today call the Old Testament. He's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, take a moment here. Turn to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke chapter 24, I want to just show a couple of quick verses here that draw out what the law and the prophets is referring to. Luke 24, this is the day of the resurrection. Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road with the disciples who don't yet recognize him. Look with me at verse 25 of Luke 24. Verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, do you see? Moses means the law, right? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then all the prophets is all the rest of the Old Testament. And Jesus calls it, he calls that group all the scriptures. No, did Jesus believe everything ever written was scripture? No, he believed a limited set of books. We call it canon or a measuring rod, a certain standard. Jesus believed a certain collection of books were part of God's scripture and other books were not. And Jesus calls Moses and all the prophets all the scripture. Now, it's more clear. Look later, verse 44. Jesus said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Now here, this is, just hang with this, okay? The, the, the Jewish people at the time, they called their Bible the Tanakh. The Tanakh. And the Tanakh has three important letters. T-N-K. Now it's going to be fancy just for a second here. T stands for Torah, the first five books. The next one, the N is Nevaim. And the next one, the K is the Ketuvim. And they split their Old Testament into three parts. They have the exact same books we have in our English Old Testament. They don't have the same books in a Catholic Bible. This is important here. They don't have the apocryphal books or anything like that. They have the exact same books you have in your English Bible, except they're in a different order in the way that they compiled them. But it's the exact same stuff. And they called it the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. And they, they were, you could head them as the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Nevi'im would be the prophets, and the Ketuvim would be the writings or the Psalms would be the first and primary book in that category. Well, what does Jesus believe his Bible is made up of? Verse 44, at the end of the verse, everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the prophets, that's the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, that's the Ketuvim, must be fulfilled. And he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. So what was Jesus' Bible? It was your Old Testament. That was Jesus' Bible. It was the Tanakh, the, the, those three, that three-part uh, accompaniment of the Scripture. So turn with me back to Matthew 5. When Jesus says He came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, the law and the prophets refers to the entire Hebrew canon, the Tanakh, your Old Testament. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to First and Second Maccabees. He's not referring to Tobith and Judith and these, uh, the wisdom of Solomon. He's referring to your Old Testament. That's the Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon never included the apocryphal books in it. And that's what Jesus is referring to. Now, what else does Jesus say? Jesus teaches the, listen, he teaches the absolute authority and the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Old Testament. There's pressure amongst Christians to capitulate to the culture in regards to what the Bible says. And one of the first places historically where Christians give up the infallibility of the Bible is with which testament? It's the Old Testament. 
It can be awkward. Certain verses in there are a little hard to explain and to make sense out of sometimes for some of us. And so, what do we do? We go, ah, well, ah, that's not really God's Word anymore exactly. I mean, it kind of was, but it's kind of not anymore. And it's the New Testament is mainly God's Word. And we have these strange ways of speaking that are not true and not helpful. Jesus says, I'm not here to do away with a single pin stroke of the Old Testament law, law, not an iota, not the least of what is going on here. In case you were wondering, an iota it's almost pronounced like Yoda from Star Wars. Okay, the actual word is Yoda. Okay, that's how you say it in the original. And the Yoda, that, that little thing, that is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The Yoda. It's the smallest alphabet in the Hebrew, uh, small, smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot in the ESV, the dot, this is likely a tiny graphical hook or marking which distinguishes very similar looking Hebrew letters. What's the point? In English, Jesus is saying... I'm not here to erase a single dot on an I. I'm not here to get rid of a lowercase t's cross across the middle. I'm not here to get rid of a single pin stroke of God's law. By the way, when he speaks of pin stroke, dots and yodas and things like that, he's referring to the written, canonized word of God. He's referring to scripture. And Jesus says, listen, those who claim I'm against law and prophets, need to, need to, they have something coming. I, I, in, a, in a little while, I'm going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I would be able to call down 12 legions of angels, which I think is 72,000 angels, and I could destroy all the Romans, I could avoid Judas, I could get out of Gethsemane, I could never go to the cross, I could never drink the cup of God's wrath. I could do that in a second. And in one sense, he has every right to do that. He doesn't deserve to be there. And what does Jesus say in Matthew's gospel? Why is he staying on the Calvary road to suffer an agonizing death? He says, if I called for 12 legions of angels, how could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I'm not going anywhere. If it's, if it's my life versus upholding Scripture, I'll give my life in a second because I'm not letting Scripture be compromised. And he was talking about the Old Testament. Jesus died to fulfill your Old Testament. My goodness, we better have a high view of the Old Testament, just like we have a high view of the New Testament. It is God's inspired and inerrant word. Don Carson writes, Jesus here upholds the authority of the Old Testament scriptures right down to the least stroke of a pen. Jesus' view of the Old Testament is the highest possible view. You can't have a higher view than down to every stroke. In John 10, 35, Jesus is having a debate with the Pharisees. They pick up stones to stone Him, and Jesus calls on an obscure psalm about, they say you are gods, but like men you will die. I think it's Psalm 86, right around there. It's not a very well-known psalm. And Jesus stakes His argument in response to the Pharisees on one word in an obscure psalm. And then He says in the middle of His argument, Jesus says, this is John 10, 35, and Scripture cannot be broken. And then continues with his argument. Why does he say that? Because at least the Pharisees agree with Jesus on this point. That scripture is true. You can stake everything on the truth of God's word. It's not going anywhere. Until heaven and earth pass away, God's word will remain. And Jesus says scripture, it cannot be broken. I love this statement from Kevin DeYoung. Listen to this. In the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus reference... Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Jacob, manna in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as the lawgiver, David and Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah and Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, Naaman, Zechariah, and even Jonah, 
And Jesus is never questioning. Never once does he question a single event, a single miracle, or a single historical claim. Jesus clearly believed in the historicity of biblical history. So point number one, Jesus upholds all of the Old Testament. Point number two, also in verses 17 and 18, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. Point number one, Jesus upholds all of the Old Testament. Point number two, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament. Don't tire of hearing these verses. I'm going to read them again. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus sees himself as the one to whom all the Old Testament points and finds its fulfillment. Not just direct prophecy. Now, this is important. We, we all, I think, know that there are direct prophecies of Jesus. Micah 5.2, he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, right? David's hometown. That's crystal clear about Jesus, it fulfilled in Jesus directly. Or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant will bear our stripes and take our sins and carry our sorrows. By his wounds, we are healed. That's a direct prophecy aiming at Jesus who fulfills it. There are many of those in the, in the Old Testament. Zechariah says, behold, our king comes humble, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, clearly directly pointing to Jesus. But it is far more than just direct prophecies that Jesus fulfills. He doesn't just fulfill a few specific, explicit prophecies. One, one, one writer, uh, one commentator, I love this, I don't even know how to pronounce the word exactly, but he said, Jesus doesn't just fulfill a few dozen prophecies, He fulfills the whole warp and woof of the Old Testament. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I just, I love that statement. He fulfilled the whole thing, the warp and woof of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills the whole thing. What does that mean? This means that the Old Testament has patterns and shadows and types that are ratcheted up as you go through the Old Testament, and the types and shadows become clearer and more precise and more honed as you go, and eventually the shadow gives way to the substance, right? The type gives way to its fulfillment. All these things point forward to Jesus, and we see this all over the place in the Gospels. Don't don't turn there, but John 5, listen to this. Jesus, again, to the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures. Old Testament, right? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Moses. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. So what's Leviticus? What's the shape of Leviticus leading you towards? It's leading you towards the true day of atonement, where the true sacrifice dies in our place, like is so well illustrated in Leviticus 16, when the scapegoat is taken with the sins of Israel far out away from God's presence in the presence of the people and dies alone in the desert. That's Jesus going outside the gate, dying alone, taking our sins with Him. But let's look within Matthew's gospel. Just real quick, we'll do an overview from the beginning of the gospel. Flip with me back to uh, chapters 1 and 2. Let's start in chapter 2. Look look here at the birth of Jesus. Look at verse 14. So Jesus is rushed off to Egypt to avoid Herod. Matthew 2.14. 
And he rose and took the, the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, same word when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Just to give you a taste of what's going on here. That's quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And we don't have time to do all this right now. I'll just give you a brief sense of this. If you read Hosea 11, it does not read like predictive prophecy of the future Messiah. It reads as a recounting of the history of Israel coming out of Egypt. God called Israel His one and only son in Exodus, and God called Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt. He, I called my son out of Egypt. Well, then why is Matthew applying that to a Jesus? It's about Israel. Why is it being fulfilled in Jesus? And the answer is, you ready? I haven't really said this yet in Matthew, so this is important. I've left it out up until now. Probably shouldn't have done that, but it's okay. Up until G Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. So what was true of Israel becomes a foreshadowing of what will be true of the true Israel. Just as Israel was called by God out of Egypt, so Jesus was called by God out of Egypt. Let's, let's go back to the Egypt story, the Exodus story. Was there a wicked, evil ruler trying to kill Israelite boys? When Jesus was born, was there a wicked ruler trying to kill Israel boys? That's not an accident. That's foreshadowing and fulfillment. And just as Moses was hidden in a basket and delivered from wicked Pharaoh as the other children were being drowned around him in the Nile, Jesus was delivered from wicked Herod, and this time God rescued him from there. Well, what's the next thing? In, in, in Matthew chapter 2, go to chapter 3, the next thing that happens is Jesus is an adult, and verses 13 to 17 of Matthew 3, he gets baptized, right? He gets baptized. And then right after that, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And then he goes up on a mountain and gives his law, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Does that sound familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, well, listen to this. He says, Israel, Israel, the nation, was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. They had a kind of death and resurrection as they went through the waters of death and came out alive the other side. It, it's a metaphor of baptism. You go under the waters of death and judgment, and you come out delivered on the other side. It's a, it's a metaphor for baptism. So did Jesus, like Israel, get baptized? Yeah, right here. And then as soon as Israel was baptized, what do they do? They go into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 years. What does Jesus do? He goes through the waters of baptism, and what does He do? He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, which represent the 40 years. And in all three ways in which Jesus was tempted, He succeeds. But remember, the three ways in which Jesus was tempted, I didn't even mention this in my sermon in Matthew 4, the three ways He's tempted are about doubting God in regards to food, worshiping a false god, and testing or tempting God. Those are the exact same three ways that Israel was tempted when they were in the wilderness, and in all three ways they failed. They complained about the food. We loathe this miserable food. We want to go back to Egypt, have the steak. I don't think they were having a lot of steak, but that's what they said. And then number two, did they bow down to a false god? They worshiped the golden calf. Were they tempting God throughout their time? Yes, Jesus is being the true and better Israel who every time he's tempted by Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and 8, responding to, he's quoting text about Israel in the wilderness, and he responds triumphing where Israel failed. Matthew's presenting Jesus as a true and better Moses, a true and better Israel, a true and better David, a true and better Abraham. And then you, you move into the end of chapter 4, and chapter 5 begins, Jesus goes up on a mountain, sits down, and gives his law. It's kind of like Moses going up on the mountain and giving the law of, the, of, of, of Sinai at that particular point. So Jesus does not just fulfill a few obscure 
and they're not really obscure, but a few direct prophecies, Jesus fulfills the whole thing. He is the typological fulfillment of the patterns of the Old Testament. When we get to Matthew 12, we'll hear Jesus say things like this, Jesus, you can't do that. Oh, really? David did it, so I can do it. I'm a true and better David. Then he says, Jesus, you can't do that. Someone says, well, I'm actually greater than the temple. I'm, I'm greater than the, I'm like the temple. I'm the meeting place of God and man. I'm God dwelling in flesh like the tabernacle, but I'm real. I'm greater than the temple. You don't go to a building for forgiveness. You don't go to animals. You come to me. I'm the greater temple. Then he'll say, one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah spent three days and three nights under the waters and came up alive, a kind of death and resurrection. Jesus will do the same, but he will truly die. Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. I'm the truly wealthy one, the truly wise one. I'm the true son of David, and I'm going to build the true temple, not a building, but God's people, a living temple, and on and on it could go. Do you see, Jesus goes, I take the Old Testament as seriously as you can, and I think it's all, in all of its complexity, it is foreshadowing me. I am the fulfillment of every single jot, every single iota, every single tiny stroke of a pen of the Old Testament. It ultimately, in its full form, is pointing towards my ministry. Let's move to point number three. Jesus teaches that we must not neglect even the least command. Jesus teaches that we must not neglect even the least command. Now, this is tricky. Verse 19, Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. A couple of points here that are important but a little bit complex, I think. So, this, this may be surprising to some, okay? I, I hear... Every year I hear a, a number of times this comment, and I don't want to be overly harsh about this. I'm not trying to beat up if you've said this before. I've said it before in the past. But I, I often hear it just said sort of just casually, well, you know, all sin is equal in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, this or that. All sin is equal in God's eyes. And there's a sense in which I think that's true, a sense in which that's true. All sin is worthy of death. All sin is worthy of hell. All sin deserves God's wrath. In that sense, all sin is equal in, in that regard. But Jesus does not teach the full equality of all sin. He teaches that there are different kinds of sin, some worse than others, some weightier than others, some less weighty. Some commands are greater, some less great. Look at it one more time, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Turn to Matthew 23 just for a moment here and I'll just show you one other text where Jesus refers to different kinds of sin. Matthew 23, verse 23. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Do you see how he's putting different weights to different laws? Should, we, should they keep all of them? They should keep them all. But some are weightier than others. Look at verse 
uh, well, well, we'll move on. Let, let's go back to uh, chapter 5. I think one of the most interesting texts is John 19, verse 11, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you from God. And then He says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What? It's the word megas in Greek, the greater sin, the bigger sin. Uh, And he's probably referring to the high priest Caiaphas or Judas, one of the two. But he says, listen, Pilate, what you're doing is sinful, but you don't know nearly as much as an Old Testament scholar should know. He's far more accountable for what he's doing. His sin of handing me to you is greater than your sin of, of what you're about to do to me. So Jesus can have different measurements here of sin. They're all wicked, but he clearly can weight them differently. Uh, Numbers 15 speaks about unintentional sins versus high-handed sins, and they receive different punishments. An unintentional sin is a lesser thing, but it's still serious. A high-handed sin, their person is removed from the people. Psalm 19 says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So you've got hidden faults, which are serious but less visible, And then you have presumptuous, high-handed sins, more serious sins there. And he asks for God to, uh, he he says, um, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We we will talk more about this in Matthew 11. So let me move on. In the same point, though, we're still under the same point. Here's my big question about verse 19. Maybe you're thinking it. Jesus says you've got to keep every single commandment in the Old Testament, and if you call the least commandment something you don't have to do, then you're going to be called least in the kingdom. But the Old Testament includes circumcision for entrance into the covenant for males. It includes animal sacrifice. It includes ceremonial laws. It includes Israel's governmental civil laws. It includes all kinds of laws that none of us in this room are keeping in this way. So, Jesus, what do you mean by saying, I'm not going to abolish the law. You've got to keep even the least of the Old Testament laws. This is where Boyd Johnson says, you're in, this is hard, <laughs> okay? This is a difficult part of the passage. It is a difficult part of the passage. Now, here's what we can say safely. I'm just going to, let me rattle off some texts here. Just listen to these passages. This is from Mark 7, so Jesus is speaking again. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then Mark adds, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, that's shocking. Jesus just said, you know those chapters of Leviticus? to say, don't eat unclean food, and if you do, here's the ritual purity laws you have to obey. Jesus just threw those out. Now, do you see, this is where the head scratching starts, okay? Jesus says, don't don't fail to observe the least of the Old Testament commands. Then he says, I'm throwing out chapters of Leviticus. I'm just throwing, I mean, we'll explain what he means by throwing them out. But he says, you don't have to observe this anymore, okay? Acts chapter 11, Peter's on the roof during lunch. He has the vision. Unclean animals come down on the blanket. Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way, this is unclean. I've never eaten unclean food. And Jesus repeats it three times. What God has called clean, do not call unclean. And Peter goes, something is changing. Maybe Gentiles can be in the people of God without becoming Jews. What if there's a change here? Okay, this is late in a sermon to give you difficult quotes. But if anyone can do it, it's you. Are you ready? This is way too late in a sermon for Don Carson quote on this topic, but here we go, okay? Just hang with me here on this topic. Before I read that, remember Ephesians 2, Jesus says, um, for Jesus has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. 
Wait, I thought he came not to abolish the law. By abolishing the law, of the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might make one new man so making peace. He means the distinctly Jewish ceremonial and civil laws are not there anymore so that Jews and Gentiles can be one in Christ. So here's the beginning of where to go, I think, on an answer to this. Don Carson, quote, The Old Testament's real and abiding authority must be understood Listen to this. The Old Testament's real and abiding, lasting authority must be understood through the person and teaching of Him to whom it points and who so richly fulfills it. Let me say that again. The Old Testament's real and lasting authority, it's still authoritative today, its real and lasting authority must be understood through the person and teaching of Him, Jesus, to whom it points and who so richly fulfills it. Here Jesus presents Himself as the goal of the Old Testament and thereby its sole authoritative interpreter and the one through whom alone the Old Testament finds its valid and continuing significance. Jesus is not announcing the termination of the Old Testament's relevance or authority, but that the period during which men were related to God under its terms ceased at the time of Christ and the nature of its valid continuity is established only with reference to Jesus and the kingdom. Okay, if you're saying, what did, the, what did all that mean? Here's what I think is going on here. The Old Testament maintains all of its authority, its inerrancy, its infallibility today. We should read the Old Testament today. We should study the Old Testament today. We should preach the Old Testament. We should not neglect our Old Testament. None of that is being negated. Here's what's going on. I believe. The Old Testament is, all all these patterns are pointing to Jesus, including the animal sacrificial system is an easy one. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus comes not to throw it away, but to bring it to its fulfillment. Jesus says, I'm not throwing out animal sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God. I am going to die as the true Passover lamb. I'm going to take a Passover meal, and I'm going to turn it into something it was not, the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Passover is not ultimately pointing to the Passover. It's ultimately pointing to me, and I have come to die in your place for your sins. I am a lamb without blemish. Not one of my bones is broken like the Passover lamb's bones were not broken. And when I die, it's not that I'm throwing out the Passover meal as a bad thing. I've brought it to its final place of fulfillment, and now it finds its fullness in me, in the Lamb who's taking away your sin. And so after Christ, we no longer observe those ceremonial and civil laws like the Jews did in the Old Covenant, but it's not because we hate those laws or make fun of those laws. Those laws are inspired by God to this day, but they found their fulfillment in Christ. Christ has has fulfilled them, and therefore we are no longer bound by elements of that Old Testament law. But there is still much to learn about God's character and about Christ from those things. Do you understand? In other words, when we went through Exodus a few years ago, at least half of Exodus, and we got to Exodus 12 and 13, the Passover meal, we lingered on that as we walked through the instructions because those instructions, while we are not commanded to have a Passover every year in Israel or something like that, there are principles in those texts that are inspired by God that shed light on what Jesus has come to do. When it says the lamb's bones shall not be broken in the instructions for the Passover lamb, it doesn't say this is a prophecy of the Messiah, but it is. Because when Jesus came and not one of his bones was broken on the cross, John quotes that verse and says, just as the Passover lamb, his bones were not broken. All of this was pointed to Christ and fulfilled in Christ. And so, 
what do I obey today? What am I left obeying today? And Paul calls it the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, the law of Christ. Galatians 1, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love is the fulfillment of God's commands. So while we are not bound today by every aspect of Old Testament law, we see it all fulfilled in Jesus, but then the laws of God's moral character that continue, like don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't worship false gods, those commands are continuous in Christ, and because of the gospel, they become guide rails for us as we live out our Christian life to tell us what we should and what we should not do to live a life that is honoring to Jesus. I'm almost done here. Fourth point, Jesus teaches that our practical righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is verse 20. Jesus teaches that our practical righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me read verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is important. It's even controversial, but I have a strong opinion about it, so, so hear, hear me out. I don't think this verse is referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the controversial part. Do I believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ? Yes, I do, with all my heart. That, the idea is that Jesus' perfect obedience to the law is credited to our account, even though we have not lived a perfect life, and that, that happens by faith alone in Christ alone, all by grace. I believe in that. That's all over the New Testament. But it's not, I don't think, being taught in this verse. I don't think that's what… Matthew does not normally use righteousness language in that way. I think he's referring to your lived-out practical righteousness. And you're going, wait, is he saying you've got to earn it? No, we're not earning our salvation, but Matthew is saying, this will come up more in chapter 12, Matthew is saying, Jesus is saying, if I have experienced the gospel, a couple things happen. Number one, Matthew 4, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. I come saying, I've got sin all over the place. God, I hate my sin. I'm turning from it. I, I need you. And then Jesus starts the sermon not by saying, blessed are the righteous, but by blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus has not lost his handle on the gospel here, okay? Jesus begins the sermon by saying, you've got to repent and you've got to be poor in spirit. Admit you've got nothing to buy anything from God. And if you know that you are spiritually impoverished by sin and mourning over sin and meek and broken by your sin, you will inherit the kingdom of God. But guess what? God's grace won't leave you as He found you. The way you know you are truly born again, that you've encountered the grace of God, is a transformation of life. And your transformation of life is not a rule transformation. It's a heart transformation that leads to a life transformation. Jesus says, listen, the Pharisees have external rule enforcement transformation, which is not transformation. The heart remains untouched. The way your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is because their righteousness doesn't reach their heart. But in Christ, your righteousness actually comes from the heart. Not perfectly, but like Romans 6 says, you've become obedient from the heart to the, to the instruction that we have given you. Paul says, by faith, we don't abolish the law, we uphold the law in Romans 3.31. We uphold the law by faith. Now that we've come to know Christ, we begin to observe His law, but it comes from the heart. And listen, the rest of this sermon, Jesus is going to be distinguishing false righteousness 
from genuine righteousness. Are you praying to be seen or praying to meet with God? Are you giving to be seen or are you giving because you love others? And that will be how he continues through this message. Close with this, Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Do you hear that? The Pharisees had law and flesh, and they couldn't do what they were trying to do, achieve righteousness. How did God do this? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father condemned your sin, if you know Him. He condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Does Paul take the same view as Jesus here? Oh, yeah. He believes in imputed righteousness and practical righteousness. They have to go together. The gospel that saves is also the gospel that sanctifies. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we, we stand back amazed by the position you give to the Old Testament. You came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And not a single pen stroke will fall from the law until all is brought to completion. And God, I pray that we would not, as we fulfill the law of Christ, as we understand the law through Christ, that we would not in any way fail to observe the least of your commandments that remain for us today, but that we would obey them with a heart of love for you and a heart of love for others because of how you have rescued us and because of all that you are for us and promise to be for us in these coming weeks and years. And I want to pray just specifically, Lord, for all of us who are going to be back at school in one capacity or another this week or in the next few weeks. God, I pray that this message would not be left just up in our heads, but that you would bring it down into our heart, that you would help us to have a fresh appreciation for all of your word, that we would read it regularly, that we would pray, that we would meet with you and commune with you, that we would cast off idols that are in the way of our vision of you, that you give us a pure heart that we could see you more clearly. And I pray that we would love students around us and faculty around us and whoever it is we're going to be around God, help us to love others well in these coming weeks and reflect you so that people would see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.